These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. In the year 1264 BCE, just by coincidence, both the kings of Babylon and Asher died and were replaced. In Asher, the son of Adad-Nirari, Shalmaneser I, transitioned smoothly into power. I should note that this is not the famous Shalmaneser. There will be five Assyrian kings by this name, and the later ones are far more prominent historically. This Shalmaneser, however, is still pretty significant on his own. One of the first things that happened was a rebellion in the former Mitanni lands. A fellow named Shatuwara II, about whom basically nothing is known, got some folks all worked up and started attacking Assyrian holdings in the Mitanni homeland of Hanigalbat. Some histories will claim Shatuwara II was the last Mitanni king, but in looking him up, I can't see any clear indication that he was even part of the ruling house, and he certainly never held any real power, so I consider him to be a figure who comes after the main part of Mitanni history, but this is really a bit of hair-splitting. The important part is that this rebellion was crushed utterly. Despite consisting of a mixed force of Mitanni loyalists, Ahlamu mercenaries, and a Hittite expedition. By the end of Shalmaneser's second year, the final spasm of Mitanni independence died out. And then, as punishment, Shalmaneser collected 14,400 men who'd been involved in the uprising and poked out either one or both of their eyes. Then, in order to quiet the potentially restive, he decided to not simply slaughter the entire populace, Instead, he took a page from the Hittite playbook, seeing that it had been effective for a good century now over in Anatolia, and became the first Assyrian king to institute a mass deportation of people out of the Mitanni territory. It's presumed, though not clearly stated, that the fields emptied out were then refilled with loyal Assyrians. This had two benefits. Firstly, it was effective in breaking the spirits of the deported people, and typically within a relatively short time, we find that the deported populations lose a great deal of their unique character and assimilate into the dominant culture. There will be occasionally exceptions to this, but for the most part, Assyria will continue to make deportations a standard practice because of how frequently it's effective. Secondly, it avoids the cost of simply slaughtering people, which, you know, moral concerns aside, reduces the economic base of a newly captured region. Of course, economically speaking, a mass slaughter is in fact often preferable to the costs of later rebellions. But the difference in cost between slaughter and rebellion must have been less than we imagined, since kings throughout the Bronze Age have carefully weighed the relative costs of killing everybody in a place against the potential risks of just leaving them there and maybe they'll rebel, and they've come up with different answers in different times and places. That said, deportation ends this conundrum because it's going to be it's going to just prove overall superior economically and perhaps morally and it's going to become increasingly standard practice the matter of mass blinding and other sorts of widespread mutilations however is a different story altogether 
This was a psychological tactic to also break resistance and discourage rebellion, both among the mutilated people, since whether you're blind in one eye or two eyes, the sources disagree in some places, you're much less likely to take up arms, and also among future enemies of Asher. The Assyrians were fully aware that they were doing something horrifying here, and were perhaps the first great empire to systematically use terror to introduce a psychological element to their warfare. In addition to this, the Assyrians are beginning to develop yet another psychological aspect to their diplomacy and warfare in terms of their theological advantages gained from the distinctiveness of the god Asher. While I suspect that the brutalization and terror campaigns were undertaken with a certain amount of awareness of their psychological effect, I get the impression that the theological developments were much more natural and occurred over a longer span of time without anyone really driving it. Still, they are no less effective as advantages. What I'm talking about here is the peculiarity of the worship of Asher among the Assyrians. Now, of course, other nations have patron gods, but these patron gods were very much one among many. And what's more, these gods were often shared among many cities. For example, there were many holy cities to Ishtar, Ninurta, Kubaba, Teshub, and so on. Asher, however, was only the god of the city of Asher, and he was the primary protector of that city alone. Other gods were acknowledged among the Assyrians, but the kings of Asher did not, as the Hittites did, habitually collect all the gods of the other nations to worship them alongside their own. And in later ages, the primacy of Asher would grow so great in the minds of the Assyrians that it would approach henotheism, where other gods are acknowledged to exist, but Asher alone takes priority in the faith. Mesopotamian theology is filled with discussions of gods changing their minds and favoring other cities. But Asher only ever favored a single city. He only ever had a single city. Sometimes he could get upset and withdraw prosperity from Assyria, but he would never abandon his one city. He never had any other people to go to. And when times were good, the psychological power of knowing that your God backed you and no one else may have been a powerful force. Indeed, we see moves towards henotheism, the dominance of a local God, and even monotheism growing in other places in centuries around this one, such as the primacy of Marduk in Babylon, famously the worship of Aten over in Egypt, and of course the worship of the god of Abraham among the nascent proto-Israelite tribes who are likely wandering around Canaan right now. Shalmaneser, though, was not the originator of any of these. The theological developments occurred gradually, over centuries. The deportations were copied from the Hittites, and the idea of mutilating rebels, while we can't point for sure to any specific origin, may have been another borrowing from the Hittites, or may have been carrying forward the idea of totally devastating your enemy that we saw in Adad-Nirari's conquest of the Mitanni, 
or it may have just been an outgrowth of what seems to have been a fairly powerful personal hatred of their former Mitanni overlords on the part of the Assyrians in general. Though these are important notes in the overall arc of Assyrian history, the king himself was likely unaware that he was doing anything of particular significance at all. Overall, Shalmaneser was as typical in his successes as it is possible for a Bronze Age monarch to be. Aside from his victory over the Mitanni rebels, he expanded the Assyrian borders generally along the less developed frontiers, listing off tribes and minor towns that he conquered in his 30 years on the throne. Details are scarce for these conquests, and indeed we often don't even know whether many of the tribes were on the northern or eastern borders. But it's been a while since we've heard directly from the royal inscriptions of the kings, and I've finally managed to get my hands on some hefty tomes that have the inscriptions themselves for the various Assyrian kings, and so let's have Shalmaneser tell us about his own conquests. When Asher, the Lord, faithfully chose me to worship him, gave me the scepter, weapon, and staff to rule properly the black-headed people, and granted me the true crown of lordship. At that time, at the beginning of my vice-regency, the land of Uru-Atri rebelled against me. I prayed to the god Asher and the great gods my lords. I mustered my troops and marched up to the mass of their mighty mountains. I conquered the lands of Hime, Uatkun, Mashgun, Salua, Halila, Luhu, Nilapari, and Zingan, eight lands and their fighting forces. Fifty-one of their cities I destroyed, burnt, and carried off their people and property. I subdued all the lands of Uruatri in three days at the feet of Asher, my lord. I took a selection of their young men, and I chose them to enter my service. I imposed upon them the conquered regions, heavy tribute of the mountains forever. The same quite lengthy inscription tells us that a city of Arinu rebelled and was completely destroyed, and its lands salted discusses the Mitanni Rebellion and its aftermath, and it tells us that he defeated the people on the other side of Uratri as well, in a separate campaign, though only took plunder, not territory, in that one. Much of this seems to indicate conquests in the region around the modern Turkish-Armenian border, pressing the Assyrian frontier up harder against the Hittite borderlands. But this is mostly a building inscription, and goes into great detail about the building he had constructed with the massive plunder from these conquests. This was the Ehersag Kukura, a massive temple of Asher which would stand for quite some time. It had apparently been built in the first period of old Assyrian prosperity, way back in the 18 and 1600s, and improved by the great conqueror of Shamsi-Adad, though a generation later, it seems to have caught fire and lay in ruins ever since. Of particular interest for historiography, though what we consider to be a dark age has passed between the Old and Middle Assyrian periods, Shalmaneser appears to have pretty good records all the way through this period. 
He mentions specifically that between the time Shamsi-Adad took power in Asher until the inscription was written, likely fairly late in Shalmaneser's reign, 580 years had passed. Now, modern dating puts Shamsi-Adad's takeover at 1809 BCE, while Shamanasser's reign ended in 1234, giving us 574 years, though the inscription is likely at least a bit younger than that. Still, give or take 10 years on this calculation tells us that the Assyrians had a fairly clear idea of at least certain parts of their history. And honestly, there's a fair deal of uncertainty in the modern estimates of these ancient dates. It's fully possible that Shamanasser's scribes had access to more accurate historical records than we do. Now, we will see that this level of understanding of native history will, over time, degrade. But it is interesting to see that through the Bronze Age, it's still very strong. More important than the dating issue, though, is the fact that this is the greatest temple of Asher, finally being properly restored after centuries, no doubt becoming a major factor in the growing prominence of the patron god going forward. While previous Middle Assyrian kings focused their building projects in and around the capital city and core region, with Shalmaneser, we start to see the construction of temples farther out, down in the Mesopotamian region, north along the region where there are larger Hurrian populations, and even out west in the Kabur Triangle, which is, of course, the former Mitanni heartland. These constructions were mostly temples to the local patron gods, not temples of Asher, and not, as far as we know, more uh, what we would call practical structures. Though, of course, these were quite practical to the Assyrians and ancient peoples themselves. Asher was always the priority for construction projects, though. The city, not the god. Or, I guess, the city and the god, but the city, the god in the city. Anyway, the other major Assyrian city of Nineveh was often a close second for construction priorities, but it's likely that Shalmaneser is attempting to widen the Assyrian heartland by spreading out the wealth of construction projects and temple patronage to places that had previously been less well connected to Assyria proper. Not by spreading out the cult of Asher, the god's prominence among the Assyrian pantheon seems only to have increased. For while local cities could have their local gods and could be tied in secular ways to the empire, Assyria as a whole was protected and ruled by a god who was primarily accessed in a single city. That said, even if these construction projects didn't involve the chief national god, whatever got built out in these cities likely had the effect of strengthening the power of the government in that city. Just look today at the modern pork barrel projects that go out to every congressional district in the United States and how fiercely local congressmen fight for those so that they can get re-elected. Shalmaneser, of course, didn't have to worry about getting re-elected, but the general idea of needing the will of the people to sort of support the empire was in effect. 
I should note that Shalmaneser is not the sole force behind the imperialization of the kingdom, and many of these trends likely began under his father and continued under his son, the three monarchs ruling over a combined 98 years and collectively representing the height of Middle Assyrian territorial expansion. But whether all this represented a conscious policy or not, Assyria is the first Middle Eastern empire to take deliberate steps to not merely rule over whatever peoples they find, but to slowly mold them and assimilate them into Assyrians, creating and reinforcing a distinctly Assyrian identity that proved to be so strong that there are still Assyrian communities in the modern day, long after the identities of Babylonian, Sumerian, Akkadian, Hurrian, and Hittite have all vanished into the mists of time. It is, in a sense, hard to neatly encapsulate this shift, and even harder to pin down exactly what was happening given the paucity of documentation, but it would prove to be a crucial shift for the entire course of history. And going forward, we'll start to see radically different ideas of what it means to be an empire. Curiously, we can actually go back to our very early episodes and see Sargon the Great and his successors attempting to do something similar in the Akkadian Empire, which is, of course, the reason ultimately why the Kassite dynasty continues to speak and write in the Akkadian language. But the Akkadians may have been held back by a Mesopotamian cosmology that saw the universe as fundamentally static. With the Assyrians, however, their experience with deportations and their understanding of what's by now a fairly extensive archive of history, they can see that, indeed, the people and lands themselves do change over time. Guided by the gods, of course, but empires are the instruments of the gods as well, are they not? But much of the change in the nature of empire, though it has its origins here, it's going to have its payoff much further down the line. For the most part, history tends to summarize the 30 years of Shalmaneser's rule with a discussion of the final crushing of Mitanni, then a note that he did some building and conquering. And, larger trends aside, it was a pretty quiet period by Assyrian standards. In Babylon, however, things are starting to slide downhill, though not very quickly at first. Our story begins in the same year that Shalmaneser took the throne, 1264. But here, the king is merely a child, Kadashman Enlil II. Now, this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing, because before now, I'm not sure we've ever seen a child monarch ruling over a major kingdom, and the very possibility tells us that the institutions of Kassite Babylon are now so strong that the personal leadership of the king holding the country together is no longer as important as it once was. In the past, there have been no child rulers, because it was simply impossible for a child to form the sort of personal loyalties that a king required. But now, the subjects and vassals are increasingly putting their loyalty to an idea of kingship and the system of a nation, and so the actual occupant of the throne becomes increasingly less important, to the point that it can be a literal child, and so long as his regent is, you know, high quality, there needs be no interruption in the business of governance. 
Of course, this is also a bad thing because history tells us child kings never turn out well. Kadashman and Lil II would live for nine years, and likely some three to five of those years would be dominated by his vizier, Iti Marduk Balatu, who would be eulogized as a man whom the gods have caused to live far too long, and from whose mouth unfavorable words never cease. We have relatively little from this short reign. Only 40 texts even mention his name, mostly economic texts that just invoke the king for dating purposes. The business of Kassite Babylon seems to have gone on, but with a single exception, we don't know much at all about what that business was. That one exception, though, does sort of make up for things, since it's a fairly lengthy and impressive letter sent from Hattushili III of the Hittites to Kandashman Enlil, discussing a wide assortment of matters. It's from this letter that we get the aforementioned poor impression of the Kassite regent Iti Marduk Balatu, and there may be more than a bit of political bias there, since the regent appears to have favored siding with the Assyrians against the Hittites on the world stage, while naturally Hattushili himself would have preferred his Assyrian enemies receive fewer allies. He even subtly hints that if the young Kadashman Enlil wants to be seen as a fully grown-up man, he should make war on his neighbors, not quite outright saying that the target should be the Assyrians. The letter also tells us a bit about international politics, as it seems that one of Kadashman Enlil's sisters had been sent to Pharaoh Ramesses as a wife, and negotiations began for a similar diplomatic marriage with the Hittites, though this appears to have remained unfinished when he died. Still, relations appear to have been friendly, since among other things they do manage to make a deal selling horses to the Hittites, who are probably still quite low on horses after their many great battles and campaigns lately. But perhaps most ominous in this single letter is the mention of the fact that communication between Babylon and Hattusha has been cut off for a few years. Thanks to the increased aggression of Assyria, messengers with official state business couldn't pass through that way, and going around the Assyrian Empire meant sending one through the territories of the desert nomads. This letter in particular mentions the Ahlamu, who are steadily growing in power enough to pose a serious challenge to the settled states. But we know from other sources that the Habiru are also becoming a growing issue around there. Both Ahlamu and Habiru are not ethnic classifications. The Ahlamu, for example, sometimes includes groups like the Arameans, who are beginning to rise out of the general soup of Ahlamu tribes, as well as the Sutaeans, who are sometimes considered Ahlamu and sometimes considered independent. Though the exact descent isn't clear, these people are successors, generally speaking, to the Amorites, who, 800 years ago, swept out from around the same region and mostly replaced the major rulers of Mesopotamia way back when, before the late Bronze Age migration saw the Kassites, Hittites, and Mitanni pop in and change the landscape once again. 
will be keeping an eye on these Ahlamu and Habiru, particularly some of their most famous tribes. But what's important here is that the nomadic groups at the fringes of Near Eastern civilization are gaining in power relative to their settled neighbors. The reason for this is unclear. History is completely silent out here in the desert. But if we look back at the Amorite rise to prominence, we can guess at two possible contributing factors. First is environmental. Matters regarding the climate around the year 1200 BCE are remarkably controversial, with people arguing over the dating of volcanoes and climate shifts to fit disputes in chronology. But regardless of whether there were or were not exciting singular disasters like volcanoes and earthquakes and meteors, it seems to me that it's almost certain some sort of climactic shift was beginning at least by the 1250s, if not a bit before. This may not have been the sort of climactic shift that depresses things globally. There were undoubtedly local effects, such as the salinization of the soil again cropping up in Babylonia, and perhaps the marginal lands at the fringes of civilization just happened to become less marginal in these centuries. Whatever the specifics here, the balance of climactic effects almost certainly changed, and this is strengthening the nomads. We saw the rise of the Amorites associated with climactic changes, and as well the rise of the Gutians who brought down the Akkadian Empire. And when archaeologists finally sort out the current mess of research, I would be completely shocked if there was no environmental aspect to this. Second is the very regional trading system that these nomads are ultimately going to help bring down. The desert nomads prey on trade, and the more international trade that exists, the more they can take through raids. Possibly more significant than mere banditry, though, the last hundred years of the Bronze Age sees the Habiru and Ahlamu mercenaries acting as extremely high-value auxiliaries among all the nations of the Near East. These groups fight, survive, and grow extremely wealthy, able to profit in both war and peace, growing their tribes enough to become major regional threats. Pretty much all of this is going on outside the historical record, among people who don't leave much writing and have very little archaeological presence. So beyond these two factors, it's difficult to explain their rise in prominence in the final century of the Bronze Age. And on the topic of people with very little historical record, this exhausts everything we know about Kadashman Enlil II, and he died after only nine years. It isn't clear why he died, but it's almost certain that he was no older than 25, and possibly even a little bit younger. It isn't clear how the next king was related. One very late record suggests that Qutr Enlil was the son of Kadashman Enlil, which is biologically impossible given that Qutr Enlil was an adult when he took the throne. Perhaps he was Kadashman Enlil's brother, but we simply don't know. What we do know is that a number of longer-term trends in Babylonian culture appear in Qutr Enlil's time. For one, the very name, Qutr Enlil, meaning son of Enlil, is the very first holy Akkadian name in the Kassite dynasty. Additionally, this is the first time that in the Babylonian written record that we see someone bearing a name which means Marduk is the king of the gods. 
Akkadian culture, and specifically Babylonian religion, are only growing in prominence at this time. Also, just as the god Asher is growing in prominence in Assyria, so too is Babylon's patron Marduk growing in prominence down in the south, suggesting that though Mesopotamia is now divided among northern and southern political regimes, there's still a certain amount of continuity of thought between the two rivers. Like his predecessor, Qatar Enlil ruled over a period of peace in Babylon, maintaining a treaty with Asher and sending a daughter to the Hittites. Pharaoh Ramesses II seems to have had a poor impression of the Babylonians at this time, but he was far enough away that his opinions likely held little sway in the Kassite courts. The dividends of this peace were sent to the three major capitals, the Kassite capital of Dirkuri Galzu, which has so far proven to be the most enduring of the late Bronze Age new capital cities, as well as the cultural capital of Babylon, and most especially the southern capital of Nippur. Nippur was both home of Qatar Enlil's personal god, Enlil, King of Winds, and it was increasingly the primary hub of economic activity in the old Sumerian region, which is experiencing something of a burst of growth around now. This burst of growth may have been quite good in the short run, a side effect of the heavy political patronage and construction projects funded by the North. But it seems likely that many of these new populations in the big cities mostly came from other parts of Sumer that were experiencing the great bane of southern Mesopotamian agriculture, salinization. For those who hadn't listened to the early episodes on Old Babylon, the very flat terrain and poor drainage of the region that was once the cradle of civilization had the long-term consequence of depositing massive amounts of salt in those same fields, killing them over centuries. The periods between the great civilizations, when these fields are abandoned, gives them a certain amount of time to recover, but it looks like by this point the old menace is returning. Additionally, climactic changes in general seem to hit South Sumer far harder than the rest of Mesopotamia, likely because over the centuries since the place became the origin of agriculture, the overall climate has worsened. And so when climate in general goes on the downswing, South Sumer gets hit harder than the places around it. Though we see large amounts of new construction and economic activity in Nippur, other ancient cities like Larsa are receiving tax exemptions for unknown reasons, but which could indicate an inability to produce enough crops to send out of the city. But there was little that Qatar Enlil could do about the shifting climactic winds. And what little we know of his reign tells us that he was as responsible as a king could be in his nine years on the throne. He died a few days into the Babylonian New Year on what we would call the year 1245 BCE. His successor was not his son. He likely wasn't old enough for adult sons, though it isn't clear where Shagarakti Shuriash came from. Perhaps another brother, or perhaps a cousin from elsewhere in the royal line. It also isn't clear why these kings keep dying so young, as Shagarakti Shuriash himself would only last 12 years. They weren't dying in war, 
none of these three kings had any recorded major wars, and they all seemed too young to be taken by disease, which leaves court intrigue as a possible option. Perhaps the internal politics of the now-declining Kassite dynasty has become unusually hazardous for those at the top, and multiple generations of internal struggle may have been part of what's keeping the nation so quiet in these years. However, this is nothing but an inference from numerous short reigns, and there's no actual evidence of court intrigue among the scarce documentation of the period. Regardless of how he came to power, Shagarakti Shuriash takes the throne at a time when the winds are starting to shift decidedly against Babylonian power. It brings us back to the core tension of Kassite power, that while the culture and opulence of Babylon and the capital cities was maintained throughout the entire period, the countryside was far more desolate than it had been in previous eras. The population was smaller, and the agricultural base on which all ancient economies were founded was far thinner than it had once been. We can see this in the economic documentation, where over 300 various contracts and receipts have been recovered, far more than any of his recent predecessors, but far from describing an increase in economic activity, they seem to be overall a record of economic difficulty. A large number of people are recorded as selling themselves into slavery for economic reasons, and we even see a priest imprisoned for debt. The Hittite viceroy over in Karchemish complains that the volume of international trade coming out of Babylon has greatly diminished, partly due to the increased activity of Ahlamu raiders all over the upper Euphrates River and along the land routes. Debts appear to have been such a problem that a general amnesty for all the women in the city of Nippur was declared. And to make it all worse, the Akkadian people of Babylonia could not even understand the name of their king. In the hundreds of economic documents, the king's name, Shagarakdi Shuriash, is spelled in no fewer than 84 different ways, telling us that the Kassite language name itself was incredibly difficult for the Akkadian language Babylonians to hear, write, and understand. Consider the difficulty of modern Americans spelling many Chinese, Thai, or Vietnamese names. Where his predecessor had borne the first fully Akkadian name, Shagarakti Shuriash has gone in the completely opposite direction, with a Kassite name that he must surely have known would be challenging for his Akkadian subjects. And I should mention, I don't think I've mentioned this in a while, these are all throne names, or at least all believed to be throne names. Many of these kings probably change their names upon ascension for political reasons. It was just customary. And so picking the name Shagarakti Shuriash was almost certainly a conscious choice by this king. While we know nothing about the cultural policies of these two men, the abrupt shift between these two extremes lends more credence to the idea that perhaps the court of Babylon was beginning to become fractured among various camps, with perhaps some supporting the city-dwelling Akkadian population more, while others drew their power from the Kassite communities the ruling house was descended from. 
One can even wonder if the tensions between the Kassite and Babylonian populations were beginning to grow as the good times began to fade away. Kassite military dominance is receding into memory, and the city dwellers might be beginning to wonder just why they've served a caste of foreigners with their own private language and their own private gods. If this is the case, we really don't have enough documentation to prove it, just some hints. Still, this sort of structural weakness would fit with what we know about the Kassite decline, helping to explain an otherwise fairly obscure period. Next episode, Babylon is going to fall. And in many histories, it appears that the prosperous and cultural Kassites simply collapse for no apparent reason at all. Now, this isn't to criticize those short, sometimes confusing summary histories. This period is, after all, very poorly understood, and honestly, our understanding of the weaknesses in the Kassite regime are as much based on speculation and inference as they are on any solid historical facts. Still, whether the Kassite regime was as prosperous as they liked to appear, or as weak as the economic, environmental, and political speculations seem to suggest... Everything changes when Assyria attacks. So join us next time for Assyrian King Tukulti Ninurta, defeater of the Hittites and conqueror of Babylon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>